From the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, this is Better Off, a podcast about the biggest public health problems we face today. We have to remember the kinds of vulnerabilities that made the U.S. have a disproportionate share of the world's deaths, despite our vast resources. And the people innovating to create public health solutions. And those won't be fixed with a vaccine. I'm your host, Anna Fisher-Pinker. I got my COVID-19 vaccine in a busy clinic in Boston. As soon as the nurse gave me the shot, she handed me a little timer set for 15 minutes, the length of time they ask you to hang around and make sure you don't have any adverse effects. I sat in the waiting room, surrounded by masked people sort of squirming impatiently in their seats. And one by one, timers went off. There's one. There's another one. Each little beep inching us closer to the end of the pandemic. The people walking out of the clinic looked lighter, happier than the people walking in. But the vaccines aren't reaching everyone. The vaccination rate for Black and Latino Americans is lower than for white Americans. And the death and hospitalization rates are higher. The pandemic has revealed how our healthcare system repeatedly fails people of color. And even if we get everyone vaccinated, that's just one virus. How do we avoid going down the exact same path again? How do we address the entrenched health disparities in this country? So in this episode, we're going to dive into all those really big questions, because this week we're better off with Mary Bassett, health and human rights expert. My name is Mary Bassett, and I am the director of the Francois-Xavier Bagneux Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. As of mid-April, the Kaiser Family Foundation reported that the vaccination rate in the U.S. for white people was 1.8 times higher than the rate for Latino people and 1.6 times higher than the rate for Black people. So I asked Mary Bassett to talk about why this gap exists. It has simply has to do with access where you get a vaccine, where the vaccination sites are located, what it takes to get an appointment, whether people have access and capacity to use the internet, whether they have the time to take an appointment at any time it's offered to them, um, that kind of flexibility in their lives, whether they have transport. It's all getting better, that's for sure. And more and more people of all groups are getting vaccinated. But the racial ethnic disparities that we've witnessed throughout this pandemic have been replicated in terms of the ability to administer vaccinations to the people who arguably most need that protection. But this winter, a lot of media sources were more focused on vaccine hesitancy among Black Americans, like this story from CNN in February. Health officials worry misinformation could complicate the process of getting shots in the arms of black and brown communities. New CDC data from the first month of vaccination shows black and Latino people lagging way behind and the state's reporting racial breakdowns. So far, 60% of the vaccinated So is hesitancy a part of the picture? Of course it is. I mean, and I would argue that everyone has the right to get their questions answered and their reasonable concerns addressed. Education should be part of any vaccine campaign. 
and telling people to line up and do as they're told is not ever a good public health strategy or ever a good strategy at all. You know, as people know, there's a, a very troubled history. And even more than that, there's people's day-to-day experience with healthcare systems in which they don't experience dignity and respect, which everyone is entitled to expect when they seek health care that makes uh, people of African descent in particular very wary. But if you look at the numbers, a March 2021 poll, for example, from NPR, PBS NewsHour and Marist shows that actually 73 percent of black people and 70 percent of white people plan to get the shot. So in other words, hesitancy isn't limited to people of color. I'm just perplexed as to why when people talk about vaccine hesitancy, they're not worrying about white Republicans who have, you know, by far the highest proportion of people who are declaring that they'll never get vaccinated. And I worry about why people keep coming back to certain cultural tropes. This notion that Black people are defiant, resistant, I'm from a neighborhood in Manhattan called Washington Heights, and most of my family still lives there. And my sister accompanied my mother, who was 92 and fully eligible, to get vaccinated. And when she got there, it was a vaccination site in Washington Heights, but she said when she pulled up, it looked like people were coming from the opera. Uh, They were from Westchester, New Jersey, and... They had figured out that they could get vaccinated at this site. When she went in, uh, there there was nobody around who spoke Spanish. The neighborhood, you know, uh, has a very large Spanish-speaking population. So there were lots of signals that you're actually not welcome here, whether they were intended or not. From Dr. Bassett's vantage point, access to vaccines is just one of many areas of the pandemic response where people of color have been left out. Black and Latino people are overrepresented in the essential workforce and in the prison system, which means there are a lot of people of color who could not stay home and could not stay socially distant. I would have thought that there would be recognition that certain occupations create high-risk situations. We know that age is a huge risk factor for COVID-19, but Mary Bassett argues we need to look at racial disparities more closely. While the majority of Americans who have died of COVID-19 were over the age of 65, younger Black and Latino people have died at much higher rates than their white peers. Even though the risk of death is much higher in somebody who's 90 years old, the fact that we were seeing relative to whites, Blacks and Latinos having five to ninefold the risk of dying when they were young to middle-aged adults is simply wrong. Not only because it's terrible to die before you've had a chance to have a, you know, a full arc of life, but because these are people who have families, who are breadwinners, who have children, who are dependent on them, and the knock-on effects are very large. But the roots of these racial and ethnic disparities are far older than the COVID-19 pandemic. I think as we think about the vaccine, Uh, We have to remember the kinds of vulnerabilities that made the U.S. have a disproportionate share of the world's deaths as compared to our population, despite our vast resources, both material and human. And uh, those won't be fixed with a vaccine. 
Even if we manage to vaccinate our way to herd immunity, which some scientists are skeptical about, the COVID-19 vaccines only protect against one virus. In public health, that's called a downstream solution. It doesn't fix whatever issue is upstream. I think that there's a tendency that we all have to, you know, look forward to a biomedical fix. And certainly these vaccines are a triumph of science. I don't mean to say that science hasn't vastly increased our ability to protect health, but it it doesn't solve the problem of people who are working in low-wage jobs without protections at their work site, who are working multiple jobs because they can't afford to live on what they earn at their job. It doesn't fix the fact that there were all these people who went to work without personal protective equipment. In the U.S., where you work, what you earn, and your health outcomes are all intertwined. So I asked Dr. Bassett, how do we begin to address those issues? And her answer was pretty big. I think we also have to talk about capitalism. Capitalism has been joined at the hip, or as Ibram Kendi says, are conjoined twins with the phenomenon of racism, which is based on the idea of the superiority of whites to people of color, particularly people of African descent. And uh, that ideology was what permitted nearly 250 years of exploitation of enslaved labor, which was not just a quaint system that let, you know, America have a sort of slightly sordid start. It was enormously profitable, and it profited the North and the South. The legacy of slavery still has an impact on the health and well-being of Black Americans. The legacy has meant that people of African descent in this country have never in a single year that we've had statistics had life expectancies that were equal to the life expectancies of people descended from Europeans. We have narrowed the gaps. We've never eliminated them. In some cases, the relative gaps have actually risen. In New York City, where I was the health commissioner, the infant mortality relative gap went up to three to one, despite the fact that this is not natural. Uh, It's been so prolonged in our country that people start to think that, you know, nobody's surprised when Black people have higher mortality rates. It's just always like that. Well, it's not natural or inevitable. So I've lately been thinking about the idea that's been floating around for a long time, And it's the idea of reparations for the transatlantic slave trade, for the 250 years nearly of enslaved labor, and the terror that followed. Reparations are still a controversial idea in the United States. A 2020 Reuters-Ipsos poll found that only one in 10 white Americans supported reparations, and only about half of Black Americans support the idea. But in 2021, the city of Evanston, Illinois, became the first U.S. city to offer reparations. In this case, they were specifically designed for the descendants of Black residents who were excluded from home ownership by racist housing policies in the 20th century, including redlining. Qualifying households are set to receive $25,000 for home repairs or down payments on property. So what they're planning in Evanston is a good start, and it's an honest effort, I think, by a local jurisdiction 
but this is not a problem to be solved by local jurisdictions. This requires the federal government because the, all, all that happened was entirely legal and not only permitted, but often endorsed and led by the federal government. Redlining, for example, wasn't just related to the private prejudices of developers. It was put in place and championed, in fact, by the rating system that was developed by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in the 1930s, a government entity, a federal government entity. What has been happening more frequently at a local, state, and national level is a new interest in discussing racism as a public health crisis. I'm announcing today that I'm signing an executive order declaring racism a public health crisis in Louisville. There have been lots of declarations that racism is a public health crisis. I think there are close to 180 of them by various jurisdictions. But first, I want to declare racism to be a public health crisis in the city of Boston. Today, I also signed an executive directive declaring racism as a public health crisis in Michigan. Most recently, Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control, also issued a statement on racism and health. Well, it really is important that the federal public health agency is acknowledging this, right? I, I took a look at the CDC website, and the, the only time they used racism was to say something like discrimination, including racism. The acknowledgement of, uh, of the impact of racism on our bodies and our health is important in and of itself. So declarations matter. Words matter. But additionally, they did say more things than that. They talked about how they're going to look at how they're allocating their budget. They talked about taking a look at themselves, the, meaning the, the CDC. You know, they need to have uh, an agency that looks like our country. That's what Bill de Blasio wanted in New York City, and we were able to do that. The health department, when I joined it as commissioner, had not a single Black or Latino in its leadership. And uh, when I left, over half of the agency leadership was non-white. From Mary Bassett's perspective as a former New York City health commissioner under Mayor Bill de Blasio, it's important that everyone who works in public health wrestle with the issue of racial equality. One person isn't going to figure this all out. What I did as health commissioner was I said to the entire agency leadership, whether they worked in finance or in human resources or ran the lab, no matter what their area, I wanted them to apply a racial equity lens to their work. And, and I mean, it was extraordinary what people came up with. It's really important that there be leadership and I'm really grateful to Dr. Walensky for taking that step. But it still takes courage, I would say. Back in the summer of 2020, at the peak of the protests over George Floyd's murder, a colleague of mine interviewed Dr. Bassett and asked her if she felt hopeful that real change could happen toward dealing with structural racism. And she answered, I'm more hopeful than I've been in a long time. When I spoke to Dr. Bassett most recently, there was no verdict yet in the case against Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed Floyd. I asked her if she still felt hopeful. I do. I do. Because... You know, I uh, my whole working life really has been a pushback. I've witnessed a pushback against the great society legislation of the 1960s. 
remember that the last time the majority of white voters voted for a Democrat was in 1964. This past summer, I, I witnessed an outpouring that I just haven't seen in well over a generation, in 50 years, really. And it was a multiracial outpouring. And I think that there is a growing willingness to embrace the reality that racism hurts all of us. The United States has uh, departed from its peer nations in terms of our life expectancy, despite spending more on health than any other nation. Our life expectancy is declining and the pandemic is going to push it down further and, and make it even more unequal. So I think there's a good reason for everyone to feel that we have a stake in this. And clearly many, many people did who, who took to the streets to say that this lethal racial hierarchy is not something that we are willing to endure any longer, black and white. So that makes me hopeful. Hope is something we all need in 2021. And I think everyone is finding it in different places. You can choose to find it in a protest, a declaration, or in a little vial of vaccine. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Harvard Chan SPH. Subscribe to Better Off in your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show so far, rate and review us and tell your friends about the podcast, too. We're better off with our team, Chief Communications Officer Todd Datz, Senior Digital Designer Ben Wallace, Production Assistant Brian Lee. I'm Anna Fisher-Pinkert, host and producer of Better Off, a podcast of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.